Today is October 1, 2012. We are at the Emma Barrientos Mexican American Cultural Center. I'm Gloria Mata Pennington, and I will be interviewing Council Member Mike Martinez. Mike, first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for taking the time to come and be with us. I'm glad to be here. I think documenting the history of how this magnificent building and center came to be is very important, and we appreciate you being a part of it. To document, I would like to start by talking a little bit about your personal history. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Mike Martinez. Where mm -hmm. was he born, his yeah. family, that sort of thing? Um, my grandfather uh, came to the United States in 1910 right in the middle of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, his parents put him on a wagon train. He was four, and uh, he and his twin brother were sent. And they migrated to Central Texas, a little town called Creaseman, Texas, uh, right outside of Caldwell, and that's where I was born. So that, my family roots start in Caldwell. All of my family, a lot of them are still there. Um, and that's where I was born. At, my grandfather had nine children, my mom being one of them, my grandfather and grandmother. Um, so a big traditional Mexican family. Uh, all the Latinos lived in the same area of this little small town. Um, many of them worked for Santa Fe Railroad, which is where my grandfather went to work. Hey, my grandfather worked for the Santa yeah. Fe Railroad. Four uncles worked for Santa Fe, um, two great uncles and my grandfather, so just a long history. Um, but that's where I grew up, real small town, thousand people, tiny little town. Um, How about siblings? One sister. I have one sister that's a year older than I. Um, my mom and dad were divorced when I was, we were, I was four, Antoinette was five. So uh, early life with a single mom. Um, she worked very hard, worked multiple jobs. She would work all day. Uh, at a chair factory there in Caldwell and then were waiting tables at night um, till 9 or 10 o'clock at night and just uh, you know had a, a tough time but loved us to death and uh, leaned on a lot of family for support and help. Um, and that's when the family unit became most important. Yeah it? it was uh, real important and so that's kind of where I got started um, in Caldwell, when we started, I guess it was kindergarten and first grade, my mom, uh, during the summer, would tell us to go swimming at the local public swimming pool, and we did, but we were the only Latinos that would go, and eventually they asked us to, to leave and not come back, hmm. and my mom challenged them. Uh, and challenged the mayor at the time and said this is a public pool and how come my children can't come swimming here and uh, of course they they told her you know the, the Hispanics have always gone to swim at the the hotel that lets uh, the Mexican kids swim there and that's where you guys should go swim hmm. and she fought and argued and uh, long story short we never got to go back to that pool uh, we ended up moving from that town. Our house got vandalized. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of crazy stuff. So how how old were you then, Mike, about this time? Five, five and six years old. Oh. Um, and it was my first taste of 
activism. My mom was not someone to stand down. She spoke her mind and she felt very strong about this issue and never really uh, understood it growing up. But now that she had kids of her own, she was not going to let her kids be treated differently. And um, that was my first start into, yeah, I didn't know who the mayor was. And she was always on the phone trying to, she demanded answers and was demanding information. And, you know, I just remember her telling me stories that the mayor won't talk to her and he won't return her calls. And, and I remember telling her one day, you know, when I was little, I said, someday I'll, I'll be the mayor and I won't treat you that way or I won't treat anybody else that way. Yeah. And that is a true story and what happened when I was a kid. And it's kind of where I think that spark started of activism. And You know, I'm not the least bit surprised. I'm, <laughs> I, I've over and over again, am, I at first was amazed to hear stories about what an impact a strong Mexicana mother can be. No doubt. But there's no doubt about it. They yeah. leave a strong mark on us. So my grandmother and my mom are the two most influential human beings I've ever had a part of my life. Um, those two women have just been amazing. So how, how old were you when you left Caldwell? We moved. Uh, I think I was eight or nine. It was a few years later. And we moved to another town not too far away, but it was much more integrated. It w there wasn't any of these issues. Uh, we moved to Rockdale. Both my, uh, my mom had remarried. She married my stepfather. And they both worked at Alcoa, the aluminum company out there. And so that's where I grew up, in Rockdale mostly. Um, Went all the way through school and all high the way, school there? Yes, all the way through high school there. Uh, left, got out of high school, went to Temple Junior College for a year, and then moved here to go to ACC. Um, and, you know, got into the fire department. I had a Thiel who was a firefighter here. He became the assistant chief, and that's what really got me interested in the fire service. And then once I got into the fire department, that's when the politics took on a life of its own. I got involved with the Hispanic firefighters. I met you. I met Mayor Garcia. Got involved with the Saldillo firefighter movement in the early 90s, and it just took on a life of its own since then. Because you were able to provide such leadership to the firefighters and their union, did that surprise anyone around you? Because it seems to me that People really expected that of you. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. I, I was elected to the vice president's role one month after becoming a firefighter. Mm. So I'd gone through the training academy. And of course, everybody knew my uncle was Paul Maldonado, who was supposedly going to be probably our first Hispanic fire chief at the time. People were talking that way. So everybody had high expectations of me. And I always had to kind of follow in his footsteps. I just wanted to be a firefighter, that's all. Um, but I had already been involved in local politics before getting into the fire department. I had volunteered on the Ann Richards campaign, you know, being a student here. And somebody, I don't know who, somebody told the fire guys, get a hold of that kid and put him in a leadership role and watch him, watch him grow because he's going to do some things. We, we think he's going to do some things in politics. So they, they nominated me and elected me to vice president. I had one month on the job. I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know people's names. And mm -hmm. here I was thrust into this role. Um, but I didn't shy away from it. I, I took it and said, you know, Apparently what can I do? Apparently you were a quick learner. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of where it all started. Um, then I, I 
just uh, in, ended up being the president. So you're you're still in the fire department. Yeah. And when did the talk start coming about possibly a city council position? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I guess after I became the president of the firefighters, and then we went out for a citywide campaign for collective bargaining for firefighters. And so I became the face of that campaign. So it was almost like I was running for office, but it was really a ballot issue. It wasn't a person. But I acted like I was running. And if I couldn't convince the public that this thing that I'm asking for for the firefighters is good, if I couldn't convince them, then I was going to lose and the measure was going to lose. So I went all across the city uh, and met a bunch of folks and I ran like my own campaign, but it was really an issue for the firefighters and we won overwhelmingly. And that's when literally right after that campaign, some folks just started asking me, would you run for office someday? And I, and I told them, honestly, I said, yeah, I think someday, but not now. I want to be a firefighter. This is why I'm, I'm doing this. This is a great job. And then Councilmember Alvarez was, was term limited, and his term was coming to an end. Um, and everyone was talking. Who's, and we had the gentleman's agreement. Right? Who's going to take his place? Who's it going to be? Some want, many wanted a Latina uh, for the first time, understood that. Um, but some folks came to me and said, we need you to decide within the next two weeks. Um, and we want you to, to run for council. And so I had to make a quick decision. And I, I made that decision and never looked back. And here we are six years, seven years later. What do you think enabled you to be able to create a network almost immediately of supporters? <laughs> because I think that that's one of the good things about you is that you have support citywide yeah. for many, many issues, and especially for Mike Martinez. You know, it's, I guess, one of my biggest assets at times can also be uh, a big detriment, and that is that I am very vocal, bluntly honest, to a fault sometimes. But I think what it does is for a lot of folks, they see that if Mike is going to champion something for us, we know he is going to champion this and do anything and everything he possibly can to get it done, and we're going to stand there with him. Um, and I think people see that, they appreciate that. I don't, I don't agree to things with folks just for the sake of agreeing. Uh, in fact, that's why I ran for office, because I got really frustrated by folks that would say, yeah, yeah, we'll be with you, or yes, we're, we're there 100%, and nobody was ever there. I didn't like that. I didn't appreciate that very much. And so I made a decision that when I, if and when I got elected, if I committed to somebody, we, we see it through till the end and we get things done. But that also puts me in a position to where I'm very honest with people and tell them sometimes, sorry, I can't be with you on that. I can't help you. Uh, I don't agree with you or I don't think that's a high enough priority right now. That causes problems because People don't want to be told no at City Hall. They want to be told when their issue is going to be solved. Um, I just think it, it's, it's benefited me from the standpoint of being very honest and straightforward. People appreciate that. It's hurt me in some respects because I could, there are times when I can tell people, I could probably have said, yeah, I'll work with you on that or I'll help you with that and never really do anything about it. I just don't like that. I don't appreciate that. That's so why I've been, always been honest with you about the Sister Cities program. 
it's very hard for me. I can't go to Mexico. I can't get this thing off the ground. Um, but I'm honest with you about it, and, and you know, I, I'm committed to it. I care about it, but I'm so limited now that they won't let us even think about going to Mexico anymore. And so the program has fallen by the wayside. Talking about feeling committed and yet being in a bind. Um, because you do have this citywide support, and because people often come to you for issues other than Hispanic related, mm -hmm. how difficult has it been for you to balance that ball and be the Hispanic representative and for the Hispanic people on council and yet have to worry about everything else? You know, I, I, I knew that that would be the role running, so it's not uh, something I didn't expect. I think at times the disappointment isn't mine. Unfortunately, what happens is I end up disappointing the community because if, if I have to focus on an issue that's not a Latino issue or an East Austin issue, inevitably some folks will say he's too focused on other parts of Austin that don't affect us or he's focused on other issues that don't affect us. That's the downside to it, and that's you know the hard part about balancing all of this out. You know, I don't have the luxury to only stay focused on Latinos in East Austin. I, I don't have that luxury. We have to deal. All of us have to deal with every part of the city. Um, it it does require a little extra effort sometimes. It does require. Um, attending more events, reaching out to the community more, because I'm expected, and, and I accept that responsibility, but I'm expected to represent the Hispanic community. Um, Did your predecessors share any information with you about what to expect and what some of the most important issues were to the Hispanic community? You know, Gus, uh, Mayor Garcia, and Mayor Pro Tem Trevino uh, were tremendous in that regard, always supportive, um, but here's one thing that they've never done. They've never told me what they think I should do. And I, that, that to me is a, a, a wonderful character trait in them. Yeah. It speaks directly to who those gentlemen are. They have never ever once said, Mike, you need to go do this or you should be doing this. Um, I appreciate that because when they do speak to me and when they do give me their advice, I listen because I know they're not telling me something um, just to hear themselves speak. They're, they're, they're saying something because it means something to them. Uh, so they talk to me uh, about things that they hear in the community or issues that they see rising, uh, but they've handled themselves as, as they always have, like tremendous leaders. Um, and I really appreciated them for that, and I still do. I still look to them. Gus and I just talked the other day at lunch, you know, and it was about this building. It was about the MAC. That was going to be my <laughs> next question to you, because many in the community go back to the 60s and 70s with this issue, 30 years of trying to work towards the creation of yep. a Mexican-American cultural center. You weren't there all the way around. So I wondered, when did you learn about it? And what brought about your commitment? Because you know, it is an issue that is still burning today. It is. 
Um, so I first learned about the Mac uh, early on in my fire department career. I guess it was about 20 years ago, 1993, maybe 19 years ago. Um, hearing about this movement and about this group that was working towards trying to get this facility here on River Street. Uh, and the fire department used this facility. This was mainly other fleet departments, but we would, we would do some stuff here as well because of its close proximity to some of the fire stations. Um, but then obviously I met Councilmember Garcia at the time. Um, and then the CMACA board was formed and then Really, my really first time being on this property was when La Pastorella was shown here, I think in 97. It was mm -hmm. like the first mm -hmm. event here. Um, and you know, it, it was an old metal building at the time. It was just a big old barn. We joked the other day when we were discussing that, that I really believe that when the city said, well, we have this old maintenance building that you can have, that they were really thinking that we were going to say, that old thing, we don't want that. Yeah. But instead, as Tomas Salas had said, they occupied the place yeah. and it became theirs. And right. they started working to make it a real something. You know, so I think it probably surprised many in the community. And now look what we have, yeah. prime land, a beautiful facility, and yet the community is still not all together about it. <laughs> no, there's still, uh, I guess, some old wounds from decades of struggles to get to this point. You know, when I first decided to run for office was the first time the entire CMACA board, I really met all of them, Melvin Wren and... Um, uh, is it Kathy Kathy Vasquez uh, and uh, Valerie Menard? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many of them. Yeah, they all reached out to me and they said, you know, we are the original founders of this. What are you going to do if you become a council member? What are you going to do? You know, I, I thought at that time I thought what little I knew was we've we've evolved. Now we have an advisory board. CMACA no longer exists, and they're like, oh no, we exist. We didn't go anywhere. We got replaced. And so I had to immerse myself and I talked to Councilmember Alvarez about it and try to find out what, what is the issue that I'm going to be facing if I get elected to office. And so he gave me you know, his version of the chain of events. Um, but I still see that same struggle, even up to last year when we renamed it after Emma. Some of the original task force members I mean, they were vocally very upset with me. How dare you put her name on that? That's the last thing she would have ever wanted. That's the last thing, you know, that we talked about. She was, Emma was an original founding task force member. She never wanted this named after her. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful of history or people or the work they put into it. I was actually trying to honor it by naming it after Emma. Uh, but I saw some of those old battles come back to life just in that, that little process of renaming this facility. I think that that is something that could almost be expected because over the years, hundreds of people, you know, played key roles sure. in, in trying to get this done. So 
just the other night when we had um, a little bit a meeting about the oral history and and we had some of the old timers from Samarca Valer. Uh, Kathy Vasquez spoke, Joan uh, Salinas spoke, Tomas Sala spoke, and Gus Garcia spoke. And then everything I was so proud because it seemed to have gone in a very dignified manner, just factual history being spoken until the end when it got once again emotional. But there were people in the audience who said, you know, we don't like the way this center is being run. What can we do to bring those people to buy ownership into this? What are your That's ideas about that? One of the things that I that I was able to get through the council last year that I think is going to be really important, um, we've created a different fee structure for this facility. What we found out once we opened the MAC is, one, it is such an incredibly beautiful facility in an incredible location. It is the highest sought-after city facility for events than any other facility we have. That's a good thing, but it's a bad thing in that it's a culture center and it's being used for more private events than it is you know cultural events mexican-american culture events so we've created uh, a fee structure now where cultural nonprofits and local community groups that want to do programming here are on a completely separate fee schedule than if you want to hold a wedding here you can still do that if you want to have a private event here a corporate event you can do it but you're going to pay a premium for that if you want to do community-based cultural programming, it's going to be free or extremely, extremely affordable for your organization. That's one of the ways that I, I feel like we didn't have the foresight to see what was going to happen, and now we can reverse that trend and really help these doors be opened up. for Some of these small groups, like Ballet East, mm-hmm. poor Rudy, he didn't have a facility, and he didn't have the money to rent the Long Center and, and other facilities. But what a beautiful place. For Ballet East to come, hold some programming, do some community outreach, put on a show here at a very, very low cost. And there are lots of organizations like that. There are a lot of individual artists who could uh, benefit from having, you know, classes here and their art um, exhibited here. That is going to be some very good news once that gets out into the community because even that evening, couple of weeks ago when we were here to discuss the history of the creation of this center. When the community came forward, they were limited in the amount of time, and one of the things they said is, after three speakers, we're going to have to close this because we have to be out of here by 8.45. And when that was said, you could hear voices yelling, if this was our community center, we could stay here as late as we wanted, you know. Right. So, yes, opening that door and facilitating it and making it more affordable to more people yeah. is a very good thing, Mike. And I commend the council for going in that direction because I think that definitely that that is what's going to help. The other thing, though, and, and I, I will not shy away from this, and I realize that we have not done our part as a council is funding this facility with with program dollars to bring in uh, the community and the kids that we want here, as well as funding the full time staff that, to that's handle exactly, that. Exactly. Yes. We, you know, we have to make that commitment to this facility. 
if we truly want it to, to be exactly what it intended to be, we haven't done that yet. We, we do have obviously a staff here. We do have some programming here. Um, but the council has to step up and uh, allocate additional funding and make sure that the center becomes exactly what we envisioned. Um, but again, it, you get those cross-community battles. You know, people point to the Carver, or now they point to the Asian Resource Center, and look what they get, and look what they get. I understand that. I understand that it's, it's competitive by nature. Um, but if we could stay focused as a community here at the MAC, I think we could get everything done that we wanted. What happens is, inevitably, there's some internal battles and struggles that eventually rise up. And I think in some, some respects, they prevent us from moving forward. They prevent us from showing that unified front that this is what we need, this is what we want. Um, if council sees it fractioned and splintered, um, I think what you see from council is a direct result of that. You see a council that's hesitant. Let us know when mm -hmm. when you guys come to an agreement. Let us know, we'll, you know when you get it together. Right. And we'll be I, here and, to help. And I, you know, I realize you're not going to be able to get away from all of that. That's just the world we that's live in. That's human nature. People, yeah, too, people don't you always know. agree. But I do think that we need to learn to appreciate what we have. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned earlier. It's a fantastic location on the banks of Lady Bird Lake. A fabulous building designed by a world-class architect, you know, a Mexican architect right. at that. It is just something to be very, very proud of. And I think that if we could work to bring the community together, to appreciate it together, and to buy ownership into it, there's no stopping with what this building could do in agree. programming and what it could bring to this city. Oh, I agree. And most importantly, to the community. The community that has worked so much. I was going to ask you about your commitment for the future of this center, but you've already expounded <laughs> on that quite a bit. But well, I think we should not see? let us, another bond package go without finishing another phase, phase or both phases at once. Uh, the fact that we went through this next, and, and uh, trust me, nobody got whatever they wanted in this bond package, but the bottom line is there's going to be a lot of folks that get a lot of money. It's $385 million if they all pass, and we didn't allocate any for the MAC. To me, I don't see I struggle with how we as a council can adopt policy that says we're going to go out and spend money on new facilities when we haven't finished the ones that we already have committed to. This is one that we made a commitment to in 1998. And here we are 14 years later and we haven't started phase two. so logical, my friend, that it just is <laughs> not going so to So we fly, went through you know? 2006 and we did $5 million to Mexicante Museum. And at that time, there was talk that they may move yep. here. And that may it'd be a great thing. It creates some pedestrian traffic, maybe a little restaurant, uh, you can get some tacos, whatever. All this conversation started going around that bond package. So we said, okay, we'll do $5 million to Mexico. They, they can sell their building on Congress, take that money, build a new facility here, add our $5 million. Nice thought. Well, those plans changed. Now... And, and for whatever reasons, I'm not harping on why they changed, 
bottom line is nothing happened out of 2006 for this site. Here we are, 2012, we've missed it. The bond package is gone. And we didn't maintain as a priority funding for the MAC. And I think that's an opportunity lost. In the many years that I have been involved with the city of Boston, I have seen advisory boards that are, have become experts at utilizing their power as board members to, to advocate on behalf of the center that they are representing. And I have seen others who have not taken the initiative to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think the city has a responsibility also of letting them know. Did the bond hearings sneak up on this board and, and before they knew it, it was all settled? What can we do to make them more aware of the opportunities that they have as advisory board members? Well, you know, I think everyone had their opportunity. We had a billion dollars in requests this year. And that committee had to get it down to 385 million. And, and people are still arguing on whether or not it's the right recipe, if you will, of, of yeah. requests. People still believe there are other priorities that we should be focusing on. Um, in the end, you know, it, it's a process that we had and, and council ultimately made its decision to put the item before the voters. Um, but that doesn't mean we, we, we have to wait. I mean, we, can, we still need to focus on the MAC. There are opportunities with this site that are unique to any other site, and that one opportunity is parking. There is a tremendous opportunity to generate serious revenue here at this site with paid parking. That money should stay here on this site and uh, you know, be invested into the MAC. Now, we have to balance this policy out with when events are here, you know, who gets to park here. But, you know, between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. when Rainy Street is going crazy and everybody's looking for a place to park, this facility is not being used and we could generate some substantial revenue here um, to, to continue to expand the MAC and not have to wait every six years for a bond. In fact, you can create revenue bonds right now if, if we can put a plan together that projects a certain amount of money per, per year from parking revenue, we could go out and bond the rest of phase two and three of the MAC right now and just pay for it over time through debt service on parking meters. Um, there are other ways to do this, and that's my focus. My focus is going to be not waiting for this traditional every six years, see if we get something. My focus is going to be what can we do now, today? to move this thing forward and continue to work on it. If I remember correctly, the early discussions on the phases of adding to this uh, center included some talk of a parking garage. That's correct, that's phase um, three. So that is still in, under consideration and once again could be utilized as a revenue producing it is. Now, to be completely blunt and honest with you, that conversation has taken on kind of a life of its own. There are some folks that are talking about a, a commercial project here, so uh, kind of a Latino-themed based hotel. 
that has a parking structure. They're, they're, and those are conversations. Those are not city council conversations, but there are people out in the community with their own ideas about how we make the MAC successful. Uh, when I first got on council, someone approached me about building a condominium tower that would create revenue, and and I listened to the proposals, but it, you know they didn't really uh, take complete hold as as to getting to the council as a plan. But there are folks that are talking about a potential hotel project with a restaurant, and, and that would have a parking structure to it. I Bottom think line that is, that has the community very worried too. I think in some respects it does. Yes. Uh, the, the over-commercialization of the site. Um, but there are others in the community who are for it and think this could be a great thing. You know, uh, Again, it's one of those things where it is going to have to be fully vetted publicly. All of the stakeholders are going to have to be able to be heard on this. Um, and ultimately, I think it's a council decision to change what we've done. Right now, the only thing that we have decided upon is phase one, two, and three, and phase three is a two-story above-ground parking garage. And until that changes, that's what we're moving forward towards. Uh, I still think there's opportunity and revenue for parking there. Um, but you know, Even you, before those phases come up? Absolutely, right now. Um, and we're moving forward. What, we're, what you're gonna see out here are those solar-powered uh, parking meters. And you'll see signage, and if you pull on this site, you don't pay that meter, you run the risk of getting a ticket and or being towed away. Um, but you will be required to pay for parking here. Now, for events, those folks will not have to pay and the parking will be closed off from the public. It will be utilized for MAC events. Um, but I think that's an opportunity to create some revenue. And the revenue would go back into the general fund for the MAC? Yes, it would go back, it would come back to the MAC. Uh, it wouldn't go back to the general fund of the city, it would just go um, through a PARD line. To a, a different trust fund of some sort to, uh, to the MAC. When you discuss some of these uh, new ideas, how do you reach out to the community to try to get their input and, and how, how much input do you think it's good for a community to have? I've always said that Austin has probably the largest participatory government that I know because the citizens are used to being able to speak. You know, I, I think a good starting point is always the advisory board. If the advisory board comes back to us and tells us this thing is huge, you don't want to mess with this, or this is going to be a big problem, then you reach beyond the advisory board out into the community. But I think that's the whole purpose of the advisory board, is to vet things through them, to get their recommendations. Because those are the folks that are most in touch with what's going on here, most in touch with the people and the history behind the MAC, uh, and who cares about it the most. So that's where I always start. If something comes up, you go to the advisory board, you ask them for their input, uh, ask them for their thoughts. The chair, uh, Juan Oyvidres, is, is a great chair and he stays on top of things. He's constantly communicating with council about his concerns um, and he is always, always advocating on behalf of the MAC. He takes no other position. And, it, and I, I appreciate him for it because that's his role as chairman, to take care of this facility. Um, and he takes that very seriously. 
As Austin grows, the issues pertaining to the city and the different communities also grow. You mentioned um, the Asian Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the Carver. And the MAC, what can we do or what do you think we can do to make the MAC be just as important as those centers have become to those communities? What needs to be done? Once again, I'm trying to get your ideas on how we can get the community, besides lowering the price, to buy ownership sure. into this. Um, I, you know, I think we've started it, Bloody. I think, it, I think we're getting there. The one thing that I would like to emphasize within the, the Hispanic community is not, not just to focus on the map, but to focus on other areas that are truly based and steeped in Latino tradition in Austin. And mainly they're connected here, and it's Fiesta Gardens all the way through. This should be a parade of the history of Latinos in Austin from Republic Square all the way across. Um, that, and I think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a broader plan and a broader vision to bring all of our culture and history together um, because not everybody's going to want to care about the map. Some people are going to care more about Republic Square. Some people are going to care more about Mexico the Museum. Some people are going to care more about Plaza Santillo. The bottom line is they're all connected. They're all part of the same wonderful community that we're so, part of. So where do we stand on that proposal for Fifth Street Corridor? It's there. It's a proposal. There's no funding. It's like many other proposals. It's like phase two and three. We got the plans. We, we've got community support behind it. Where do we get the money for it? Where, how do we fund it? Uh, it didn't, it didn't uh, receive any recommendations in the bond package for funding the, the Fifth Street Corridor. But I think that's a good vision to have. I think that's, that's thinking beyond just individual little silos and bringing them all together. I really think uh, th that's what I see in cities like San Antonio. You know, it's not just about the Alamo. It's about the culture of that city, the rich history that's citywide, the missions, the river walk, the market square. Um, Austin has that. We just haven't captured it and, and made it a part of our long-term vision and plan. I think we should do that. I think we can do it. And I think there's many folks that would get behind it. I have often thought that one thing that we have overlooked, and I wondered if you agree that perhaps it is a role that the MAC could play, and that is in bringing to the forefront the contribution of Latino musicians to this city mm -hmm. and the early beginnings of those Mexicanos who brought music to this community and their contributions towards making this the capital of yeah. live music, yeah. you know? I think we have overlooked their contribution. Often we hear about the contribution of black artists, yeah. and yes, deservedly so, but we very seldom hear about the contributions of the Latino artists. Mm -hmm. Is that something you think the Mac could play a role in? I do. Um, and in fact, I've since being on the council, I've uh, championed the events that, that happen here as it relates to Tejano music and Latino music. Now, 
it's no less steeped in controversy than anything else because some some folks feel like it's over commercialization south by southwest creeping into the mac uh, there's different trains of thought now i've come down here during those events during the SECs. those are incredible events those are community events they're free open to the public um, i think we can i think we can have those events and make this a signature venue um, for for teaching our community about the history of music as it relates to uh, Austin and the live music capital of the world again it's it's not lost on who gets the money and how do they how come they get it and I don't I mean I, I really I, I don't know the answer to that Gloria but I struggle with it every each and every year when funding requests come in inevitably there's somebody else standing out there saying He's funding his friends. He's that's that's Leonard Davila. That's Andy Ramirez. He's taking mm -hmm. care of his buddies. They they're not they're friends of mine, yes, but they're they're putting on a program that I support wholeheartedly. And well, the music that came out of the Pan American Hillside is definitely had an absolutely. impact on absolutely. this city. So you know, it's time that we do recognize all of that. And I think that Leonard has a right. Hey, I remember street people. Oh yeah. You know? So um, I think that um, those contributions cannot be overlooked. I um, talked to the young man who's uh, in charge of the music um, division for the city, Don. Don Pitts? Yes. Mm -hmm. First time I've met him. And I, I told him that I thought the Latino musicians had to receive more recognition and what we could do to accomplish that, to make them a part of the history right. as they rightfully should be. And he definitely sounded like he was interested in that. He is. He's, he's doing some programming with uh, Latino artists. And, making and sure. I know that the music that they're trying to bring to Plaza Saltillo and other places will help. It certainly will help to program Plaza Saltillo and maybe put a stop to the de deterioration there. But music is the way to do it, you know? Yeah. And I'd like to see it. But when you think about big shows, I mean, Plaza Saltillo can accommodate a few hundred people right. comfortably. And, but when you think of a big, big show, you're going to think of the Mac. The Emma Barrientos Mexican American Cultural Center. That's mm -hmm. going to be the place for the big shows. Right. And I'll continue to support them. One of the things that uh, has helped us is the Holly Good Neighbor Fund that has allowed us some cultural arts programming funds each and every year. Last year was the last year. Yep. It's gone. And so conceivably all of these events could go away too. If they don't find sponsorships this year, uh, and I'm still trying to find the sponsorship through the city. Um, but you saw, you know, the budget rounds we just went through. Uh, not everybody got what they wanted, and some things got cut. But I think they're important. I think they're extremely important, uh, not only to the Latino community, but to Austin. What kind of city do we want to be? What kind of city uh, are we in terms of supporting our, our local different parts of our communities and I, I think it can be done I you know I don't see why we can't continue to support these events I know there's not enough money to do everything that everyone wants but I think if it, it's of most importance 
for the Hispanic community to get their fair share of the pie. Sure. It hasn't always happened, and I think that it should. Yeah. And I think that people who are in the position, such as yourself, to make sure that that happens, need to really be vigilant about making that happen. I agree. Because I don't think that everyone's going to be unrealistic about it. You know, they have pie-in-the-sky dreams just like everyone else, but we know that they can't all be funded, but it sure would be nice to get our fair share of the pie Mm -hmm. so that we can continue to grow and make the things that we love and appreciate about this city continue to grow. I agree. Mike, in wrapping up this, we've heard about your involvement with the MAC. We've heard your commitment to continue to help in any way possible. What are your future plans? (laughs) Mine? Um, Besides being a dad? Yeah, that is my future plans, is to just love my two boys, my little Diego, who's one month old yesterday. He is precious. This is going to be his home. This is going to be where he grows up. That's right. This is going to be where he and Alejandro play and play music and learn about who they are. Um, my, you know, my future plans don't entail anything other than making this place uh, the exact city I want it to be for my kids to grow up in, to raise their families in. Uh, and I'll keep working on that. If that means serving in public office, great. I love it. I enjoy it. I'll continue to do so. But if that means doing something else and, and to being a dad at home, I'm completely happy with that too. Um, this has been the biggest honor of my life to serve as a council member. Uh, being a small town kid, uh, coming to Austin and becoming a firefighter. I, I've had so many dreams come true in life. Um, I'm, I'm the most blessed man on earth. There's nothing else that could happen to me to make my life more fulfilling than everything I have right now. And so everything else is just an added bonus. Uh, I love this town. and I'll. I promise you I will be in, be involved in some way, shape, or form until I'm long gone um, because I care about it that much. And I don't plan on going anywhere. I plan on staying right here and getting old. <laughs> I thank you so very much for sharing your time, your thoughts, yeah. and letting us hear your commitment to Austin and its citizens. Thank you, Councilor. Thank you, Gloria. Appreciate it.